How's everybody doing this morning? Come on, y'all. I'm, I'm going to need your help this morning. Can y'all help me? All right. We're going to have some fun. We are in the, mere, the middle of a series we started in Mark 9. So we're going through the book, not the book, the chapter, Mark 9. And we've actually been going through, kind of covertly, we're going through the whole gospel of Mark. All right. We're just going chapter at a time and we take a break and we come back because we believe in a steady dose of the Bible. Amen. We need the Bible in our lives. Uh, and so we've been going through uh, the, the, the chapter, Mark 9. So if you want to join with us this, for, for the rest of this month, we're going to be reading that. Um, but we are in our third part. Now, I don't know if, did anybody watch the, uh, the documentary, The Last Dance, Michael Jordan, Chicago, a few of us? Okay. It was good, wasn't it? So it was a good uh, series, and it reminded me of what we're doing right here. And, and this is why this Michael Jordan had his last season in Chicago and they were kind of giving unprecedented access to kind of record the, the, the locker room and to kind of follow the story and, and give more attention to this, um, to this year, this particular year, because they, this is it. This is the last one. Um, and I looked at Mark 9 and it made me think about Jesus and kind of the, this four-part docu-series, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where we get four kind of perspectives on this one story. And Jesus is coming into his kind of descent into Jerusalem. All of uh, Mark had been leading up to Mark 8. And Jesus looked at his disciples and said, hey, who do people say that I am? And Peter just knocked it out of the park. He said, man, you're the Christ. And Jesus said, you're right, I am. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. And from now on, Jesus started, I don't know if you've ever watched a movie, but you hear the music change. And you know like, oh no, something's happening. Well, the music changed in Mark 8. And Jesus went from Caesarea Philippi, which is in the north of Israel, and systematically through Galilee, through Samaria, he's going to Jerusalem with this kind of face like flint. I'm going to the cross. And we get this kind of the last dance version of Jesus taking his disciples to the cross and, and watching him through this kind of the way of glory. That's why we had titled it that. The way of glory is that Jesus is not just going the way of glory through the cross, but he's showing us and modeling us to us the way to follow Jesus into glory. And so we're going to jump in in a very short passage uh, this morning in Mark 9. Verse 30 through 32 should be on your screen. <clears throat> this is what it said. And they went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for your word. Thank you for bringing us here. Thank you for those who are joining us online, Lord, that we might commune with you and hear your voice. If there's anything in our lives that, need, uh, that you need to touch or speak to, that we would be open to that this morning, that we wouldn't be in a hurry or be distracted, but we would be attentive to your voice. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the disciples get um, a lot of ridicule about this. I don't know if you've ever kind of looked at this and, and Jesus is saying, look, I'm going to die. 
and then I'm going to raise from the dead. And his disciples are like, what's he talking about? You know, have y'all ever noticed that? It's happened a few times in, in this passage. And it's interesting how I, these disciples get a hard time, but you have to realize that Jesus did speak metaphorically at times, right? If you, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you know, I kind of like, I'm sure the disciples are like, is this the f- flesh and blood thing? Is this a real thing? You know, and so they're on the edge of like, man, I don't know what he's talking about. And I think somewhat God was not allowing them to see on some level. But here he is. And so we, we look at this, this morning, this passage, three points. The first one is this, Jesus's powerful prediction. Jesus's powerful prediction. Jesus is predicting his death and resurrection before it happens and how it would happen. Now, scholars and skeptics in our day would look at this passage and say, Jesus didn't say this. The disciples, after Jesus died, came back and wrote this in to make it look like Jesus knew what he was talking about. That's why when Jesus was on the cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, Jesus is confused. That's what the scholars would say. But here's the problem with this. The disciples didn't predict this. Disciples didn't go back in history and write this in. This was the plan from the beginning. See, this isn't a prediction that 12 disciples in Israel kind of wrote into the story. This book is 66 books written over a thousand years, different authors, different nationalities, different perspectives. But did y'all know that it tells one story? The story of a savior king who would die. You don't believe me. Okay, so we go to Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sin. They cover themselves with fig leaves. And what does it say that God did? He said, he slayed an animal and covered them with skins. Death would cover the shame of our nakedness. And then he would lead them out of the garden. So from the beginning, we see that. And then Abraham, Abraham would have one son of promise, his one and only son. And what would God say? Abraham, I want you to take your son Isaac. And I want you to take him up to the mountain. I want you to sacrifice him for me. And Abraham, Isaac takes the wood that will burn him on his back and he walks up a mountain to give his life. And what does God do at the last second? He provides a substitution like a ram that would die in his place. But do you see that Isaac, the only son of the father, would carry the wood to his death? Doesn't that sound like Jesus? Thousands of years before. So you, you sing the story and it's unfolding, but not just in Abraham. We see it in the Passover lamb when, when Egypt had enslaved Israel and the plagues were coming. And what did God say to the people of Israel? He said, look, I want you to take a lamb I want you to slaughter that lamb and I want you to take the blood and put it over the doorpost of the altar so that when God's judgment comes, he sees the blood and then he passes over. Jesus's blood on the doorpost of the cross would provide protection from the wrath of God. It would um, even be a substitute, a substitute of God's wrath in our stead. We move on. The whole sacrificial system in the Old Testament the priests would lay their hands on a, a, an offering and, and impute. They would transfer the guilt of Israel on an animal 
it would be killed so that they would have another year apart, of God, apart from God's judgment, but they would be in God's blessing. The whole system was around this reality. Something has to die to appease us of our sin, to take the sin away from us. We move on to Moses. He was in the, the desert and he puts a bronze serpent on a stick because the children of Israel were being bitten by serpents and they were dying. And, and God says, put a serpent on a stick. Put the very thing that's killing you on a stick and if you'll look to it, you'll, you'll trust it, it will heal you. Jesus would become sin, the very thing destroying us, be raised on a cross so all who look to him would be healed. So this isn't the disciples writing a story in. This is Jesus fulfilling the story that's been being told from time memorial. We are a part of a grand tale that God is telling. And Jesus is the point of that tale. Now, what's neat is he invites us to be a part of that story. We are in Christ. And therefore, he is recruiting us. He is asking us to be a part of what God's doing. Jesus' powerful prediction. I don't, I feel like um, Hebrews chapter 11, time would permit, won't permit for me talking about Jonah and Daniel and Esther. But this story that God is telling, I, I will read one passage from the Old Testament. This is Isaiah 53, 400 years before Jesus would go to the cross. He says, who has believed what he has heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form of, or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Are we like all we like sheep have gone astray? Ain't no one of name, name one in this room who has not gone astray. All of us, I lost my place. What verse am I in? Thank you. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet we open, he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. And there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of God to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. 
Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear our iniquities. Therefore, I'll divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressions. What is Isaiah prophesying? One would die for the sins of the world, pierced for our transgressions. This wasn't the disciples writing a story. It was God telling a story through his son, Jesus. A bold prediction. And we see it here. The death of Jesus had to happen, y'all. It had to happen. What does the death of Jesus mean for you? Very simple. You are so valuable to God, he would willingly suffer and die for you. You are so valuable to God, he would willingly suffer and die for you. That's how valuable you are. But it also shows us that we are so heinous and so sinful and so arrogant and so proud that he had to die. It's, it's beautiful what Christ has done and painful. Jesus Christ died for you and me. You are valuable this morning. You're a sinner in need of a Savior, and God knows so am I. And we needed him. And Jesus Christ became God's judgment for, in our place. And that is beautiful. We are, there's this, there's this picture in the Old Testament of the, where we get the word scapegoat, where, where it's a, a guilt, sin offering, and, and the people lay hands on this goat, and the sin of the people goes to this goat, and then they release the goat into the wilderness. God puts our sin on Jesus and sends it away forever. That's a beautiful thing. Not only does Jesus predict his death, but he has patient endurance. If we study this passage, Mark 8, 9, and 10, Jesus says this explicitly three times to his disciples. This is the second of three times. If we count on his way down uh, the Mount of Transfiguration, he looks at his disciples, the three that are with him, and he says, don't tell anybody about this until after I rise from the dead. And they go, I wonder what he means about rising from the dead, <laughs> right? So three out of four times, Jesus right here, explicitly, they don't get it. But I think embodied in this passage speaks something uh, very encouraging to me, and that God is patient with you. He's going to tell you once. He's going to tell you twice. He's going to tell you three times a lady. He's going to tell you four times, whatever it takes, wherever you are in your life right now, Jesus is patient with you. He's patient with you. God, I need God's patience. I was reminded of that this weekend. Anybody reminded of God's patience this weekend? Just me. God help me. Look, we have pre the disciples had this view that when God brought his kingdom, it would come a certain way. Don't we have views of how we think God should do things? And God doesn't do things the way we want him to do those. But he's patient with us. Man, he says, you know what? You guys are hard-headed and you're not going to get this, but you know, I'm going to tell you once. I'm going to tell you twice. I'm going to tell you three times. I'm going to tell you four times. I'm going to tell you five times. I'm going to help you get where I need you to get. He's patient with you. 
man, I need God's patience. But patience isn't just patience. Like if you've ever, if anybody's ever raised kids or, or trained young people, patience is not just analytical. It's not just theoretical. Patience hurts, right? Patience is painful. It's patient endurance. It's long suffering. It's personal. There's a, a movie that came out in 2016 called Denial. It was based on a true story of Deborah Lipstadt. I hope I said her name right. She was a professor, a Jew, and a historian. And she wrote a book that uh, criticized a Holocaust denier. Um, his name, if I can find it in here. Irving, something Irving. And he, he was, uh, he, she wrote against this guy. Well, he charged her with libel in a British court. And so she had to go to court and face this guy. And during the movie, there was a heated exchange in the, in the, in the courtroom where he's attacking her. And he's, his, his uh, strategy is to dismantle her and tackle her and, and attack her. And if she'll react to him, he will kind of win the, the case. And, and her lawyer pulls her side and there's this heated exchange between the both. And, and she says this, and it's just the most powerful part of the movie for me. And I'm watching because a lot of courtroom stuff and they're visiting, trying to prove that this guy knows the Holocaust is real and is lying. And they're trying to prove that. And they're in this court and she looks at him and she goes, he is attacking me. And you want me to sit back and do nothing. You want me to live with that? And the lawyer just looks at him and goes, it is the price you pay for winning. And so when I think about that, Jesus was attacked. He was cursed. He was wrongly accused. And what does the Bible say? He spoke not a word. Could he have said, they're wrong. I can do something about it. He could, but he didn't. It was the price he paid for winning. To carry in his body the sufferings of your and I sin. Jesus is patient. Not just in the face of the cross, but in the face of you and I. He's patient with us. There are some of us in this room. We have wrong mindsets. We are hard-headed. Myself intentionally inclusive. God is working counterintuitive to what we would like. And he's patient with you. I mean, I'm just thinking at the basic part of the gospel, and this is what it is. You and I cannot earn our way into right favor with God. That doesn't make sense. It doesn't feel right. We want to bring something so that God will look on us. Well, look at all these good things I did, God. Look at this. Added, you know, it's funny, we're, now with social media, we're becoming expert marketers in our own character. It always looks great. You know what I mean? But let's be honest. There's another side of the story that we don't post. And so God sees the whole story. And he's patient with us. Maybe you're dealing with a habitual sin this morning. 
an addictive behavior, an inordinate response to certain situations. Can I encourage you this morning? He's patient with you. He's patient with you. Maybe you're dealing with anxiety and fear and insecurity, something that you thought you would be long gone of by now. He's patient with you. He'll get down in there with you. He'll sit with you in your dirt, your insecurity, your, your fear, your anxiety. Y'all know that when Peter looked at Jesus one time, and it was that moment where someone had sinned against him seven times, you know? And then he had kind of recall, I think Jesus said something about seven, you know? Jesus, is it seven times we have to forgive? And what does Jesus say? Seventy times seven. Now, I want, I want you to think about that. If God requires that of us, how much more himself? He is patient with you. Well, you've, I've just done it too many times. Seventy times seven? He's patient with you. And he'll bring it back. And he'll encourage you. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. If you're in Christ, he won't deny you. He's patient with you. How many times, you all know the, the reality that if someone's drowning and someone goes to try to save them, they pull the person trying to help them down? How many times has Jesus gone into hell and we had attacked him? We've been critical of him. Something didn't go our way. We pointed our finger at him. Long-suffering. He'll knock you out and drag you out, right? So he had to save me, praise God. Knock me out, drug me out. How did I get saved? I had to knock you out, but I got you out of there, right? We need a long-suffering Savior, and good thing we have one. It's funny that we don't want a long-suffering Savior for someone else, but we want it for us. Three times, God. Is it three? No, it's 30 times, 30 times. Right, And so when walking in community, we're going to have to have long-suffering for each other. There are people in this room who don't think like you, who have insecurities, who have issues that rub you wrong. I want you to remember Christ's long-suffering for you and draw from that reservoir. That doesn't mean it's without pain. That doesn't mean it's without endurance. It just means that you have one who endured greater things for you and have access to the power of God to endure. God, I need this this morning, y'all. I'm it. the only one. I'm the only one, Miss Irene. I need it, Lord. Jesus was patient with me. I need that when I'm parenting. I haven't done that right every time. Can I be honest with y'all? I haven't done that right every time. I need it in marriage. I know my wife has. <laughs> That's why she didn't have the mic. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I've needed it walking out this Christian life with my brothers in Christ. My sisters, I've needed it. He is long-suffering. He is patient with us. He is patient with us. Number three. Jesus' priority of discipleship. I love this. And they went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. He didn't want anyone to know. Jesus ministered to the crowds. 
He did. He didn't neglect the crowds. He ministered to crowds. But he prioritized discipleship. I just want you to get into Jesus' mind here. All right, the disciples are ready for me to make my descent into Jerusalem from the northern of Israel through Samaria all the way to Jerusalem. It's going to take some time, but they only have a couple weeks. They get a few weeks. And so Jesus' mentality is this. Man, let's start a crusade. You know, let's, let's get thousands. Let's get, gather the crowds. I got to preach everything I know in the next three weeks. That's not what he did. He literally left the crowds and snuck away. For Jesus to say yes to relational discipleship meant he had to say no to other types of ministry. Can Think about all the people Jesus could have been healing during those few weeks. Think about, it's just like um, somebody asked the other day, it was kind of funny because Elon Musk had, had uh, bought Twitter and everybody's up in arms, right? And this person came up to her and they were like, you could have given that for charity. He goes, well, I did start a business that's creating electronic cars that's going to help with global warming. Like, I'm employing thousands of people, everybody. I'm doing stuff, you know? It's just funny how we can critique every, what everybody's doing. You could look at Jesus, man. Why weren't you out healing the crowds? Why were you out doing all these things? Jesus said, well, I had to spend time with the 12 disciples. That doesn't seem right, does it? How many people could have been healed? How many demons could have been cast out? How many free meals could Jesus have provided? <laughs> and what did Jesus do? He said no to that, to say yes to relational discipleship. I've got to spend time with these small group of people so that when I go away, they can push forward the kingdom of God. What does that mean for us? I love this uh, quote by Robert Coleman out of the Master Plan of Evangelism. He says this, We must decide where we want to min our ministry to count, in the momentary applause of popular recognition or in the reproduction of our lives in a few chosen people who will carry on our work after we are gone. Really, it is a question of which generation we are living for. Jesus didn't neglect the crowd, but he prioritized relational transfer of the gospel. The gospel isn't a message unless it's worked out in a, a life. The message of Jesus doesn't hold weight unless it's worked out in us. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's the gospel transformed and transforming your life. You and I are in process. And when Christ is bringing us along and changing our lives and as we're repenting of sin and casting down our idols, the world sees the change and it gives credence to the message. Jesus is alive. I know what Blake used to be like, and he's not like that anymore. Look what God could do. Only God could have done that. It means testimony. And so it's, it's relational. It's not just informational. Is there information? You've got to know that Jesus died for you, right? There, there's that old phrase, uh, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. It's always necessary. No one walks up and say, I think Jesus died for me. Someone had to declare it. But it has to be lived out in relationship too. And so Jesus is in this moment saying no to one thing. If, if we say yes to this, we have to say no to a hundred other things. We have to. You cannot do both. 
And Jesus is modeling this relationship. Relationship. Relational discipleship is at the core of Jesus' ministry. What does that mean for you and I? It means this, that we've got to sit down and have dinner together. It means that we've got to look across the table at another Jesus follower and love each other. It means that this is a percentage of what must happen if we're going to be changed. This is a percentage. If this is all we're getting, this is good, but it's not enough. That's why we push life groups. That's why we push doing a relationship together. We've got to get to know each other so that we can help each other follow Jesus. So for the person that you're supposed to help follow Jesus and the person that they're supposed to help follow Jesus and the person that they're supposed to help follow Jesus because it's going to be, we're going to need some help. So Jesus is prioritizing the transfer of the gospel through our lives, through relationship. That's why a pool party sounds very unspiritual, doesn't it? But that's where we get to see each other in real life. We get to love each other. We get to hear the story, something we might not be able to do in a room like this. That's why life groups are so important. It's why meals are so That's why we've been emphasizing hospitality, but because it's at the table that we get to see each other and share a common experience and see what Christ is doing in each other's lives and be mutually encouraged. Amen? Amen. This is a a short passage. Three verses. What do we see? We see that we are a part of a story God's been telling from the beginning. This isn't this kind of cult religion that spurred out of Jerusalem in 0 AD. This is a story God told from the beginning. I will, from the beginning, have to die and redeem you from your own sin and your own self so that you might know me and walk with me. And then I want to put the kingdom of heaven, I want to pull heaven down into earth. I want you to see the difference here. I want to pull heaven down into the earth through my people, walking by the Spirit, being transformed by the gospel. And I want you and I to be a part of that. We get to be a part of that. This isn't, the the message of the gospel isn't yanking up us out of here so we don't have to experience any kind of tribulation or, or, or pain. This is us patiently enduring like Jesus so that the gospel is fleshed out on the earth. And little by little, it ripples into the nations of the earth. Sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly, but always rippling, always rippling. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you that you have patiently endured with us. Lord, I pray that we're reminded when we are at the end of ourselves, at the end of our patience, Lord, that we would not forget how patient You have been and are currently with us. Lord, when we see our brother or sister or or even our enemy mocking and belittling us, that we would see ourselves mocking and belittling you and remember that you patiently endured. Lord, help us to be a light of the gospel in this city a light to our homes, a light at our work, a light on campus, 
a light at our schools. Lord, not perfect, but stumbling forward in the gospel as sons and daughters of the King. Lord, help us this morning. If you're in here this morning saying, Blake, I am patiently enduring right now and I don't know how much longer I can do it and I need some help. If that's you, I just want to pray for you. Raise your hand for God's grace to endure. Amen. Anyone else? Amen. 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 You can put your hands down. If that's you, just to yourself, just lift your hands to the Lord, maybe just in your lap. Just receive from the Lord this morning. Holy Spirit, Lord, you know every hand, you know every heart this morning who is patiently enduring, who is experiencing in their body suffering because of what they see or what they know. And Lord, I'm asking you to give them grace to endure. Lord, I pray that you'd help them transfer that to you, our our chief shepherd. Lord, help them to, to rely on you for the strength. Lord, I pray that you would give them strength this morning to endure. Lord, that we would be a people that patiently endures with others because you've patiently endured with us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Can we give God the Lord a hand? Let's stand to our feet this morning. Thank you for being with us. We're going to be here next Sunday. We had a great uh, time at worship night this past Wednesday. So every second Wednesday of the month, we do gather in this uh, building, in this room to worship and pray. We are actually going to do, as, as Rich said, we're going to do that the month for four weeks in a row in June, starting on June 8th. Matthew Lilly is going to launch us out in that and kind of leaven us with a heart for prayer and worship. And then we're going to be there, there every uh, Wednesday that month in June. Uh, Thank you so much for being with us. If you are uh, in this room, before you leave, turn around and say hello to someone. Tell them you're glad they're here. We'll see you next week.